Article 9, Christ's Descent into Hell And since even in the ancient Christian teachers of the Church, as well as in some among our teachers, dissimilar explanations of the article concerning the descent of Christ to hell are found, we abide, in like manner, by the simplicity of our Christian faith comprised in the Creed, to which Dr. Luther, in his sermon, which was delivered in the castle at Torgau in the year 1533, concerning the descent of Christ to hell, has pointed us, where we confess, I believe in the Lord Christ, God's Son, our Lord, dead, buried, and descended into hell. For in this confession, the burial and descent of Christ to hell are distinguished as different articles. And we simply believe that the entire person, God and man, after the burial descended into hell, conquered the devil, destroyed the power of hell, and took from the devil all his might. We should not, however, trouble ourselves with high and acute thoughts as to how this occurred, for with our reason and our five senses, this article can be comprehended as little as the preceding one. How Christ is placed at the right hand of the almighty power and majesty of God. But we are simply to believe it and adhere to the word in such mysteries of faith. Thus we retain the substance and true consolation that neither hell nor the devil can take captive or injure us and all who believe in Christ. Article 10, Church Rites, commonly called Adiaphora. Concerning ceremonies and church rites, which are neither commanded nor forbidden in God's word, but are introduced into the church with a good intention, for the sake of good order and propriety, or otherwise to maintain Christian discipline, a dissension has likewise arisen among some theologians of the Augsburg Confession. The one side, holding that also in time of persecution and in case of confession, when confession of faith is to be made, even though the enemies of the gospel do not come to an agreement with us in doctrine, Yet some ceremonies, abrogated long since, which in themselves are adiaphora, and neither commanded nor forbidden by God, may, without violence to conscience, be re-established in compliance with the pressure and demand of the adversaries, and thus in such adiaphora, or matters of indifference, we may indeed come to an agreement with them. But the other side contended that in time of persecution, in case of confession, especially when it is the design of the adversaries, either through force and compulsion or in an insidious manner, to suppress the pure doctrine and gradually to introduce again into our churches their false doctrine, this, also in adiaphora, can in no way be done, as has been said, without violence to conscience and prejudice to the divine truth. To explain this controversy, and by God's grace finally to settle it, we present to the Christian reader this simple statement regarding the matter in conformity with the Word of God. Namely, when under the title and pretext of external adiaphora, 
Such things are proposed as are in principle contrary to God's word, although painted another color. These are not to be regarded as adiaphora, in which one is free to act as he will, but must be avoided as things prohibited by God. In like manner, too, such ceremonies should not be reckoned among the genuine free adiaphora, or matters of indifference, as make a show or feign the appearance, as though our religion and that of the papists were not far apart. Thus, to avoid persecution, or as though the latter were not at least highly offensive to us, or when such ceremonies are designed for the purpose, and required and received in this sense, as though by and through them both contrary religions were reconciled and became one body, or when a re-entering into the papacy and a departure from the pure doctrine of the gospel and true religion should occur or gradually follow therefrom. For in this case, what Paul writes, 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 17 shall and must obtain. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what communion hath light with darkness? Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Likewise, when there are useless, foolish displays that are profitable neither for good order nor Christian discipline, nor evangelical propriety in the church, these also are not genuine adiaphora or matters of indifference. But as regards genuine adiaphora or matters of indifference as explained before, we believe, teach, and confess that such ceremonies in and of themselves are no worship of God nor any part of it, but must be properly distinguished from such as are, as it is written, In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men, Matthew 15, 9. Therefore we believe, teach, and confess that the congregation of God in every place and every time has, according to its circumstances, the good right, power, and authority, in matters truly adiaphora, to change, to diminish, and to increase them, without thoughtlessness and offense, in an orderly and becoming way, as at any time it may be regarded most profitable, most beneficial, and best for preserving good order, maintaining Christian discipline, and for worthy profession of the gospel and the edification of the church. Moreover, how we can yield and give way with a good conscience to the weak in faith in such external adiaphora, Paul teaches Romans 14, and proves it by his example. Acts 16, 3, 21, 26, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. We believe, teach, and confess also that at the time of confession, when a confession of the heavenly truth is required, when the enemies of God's word desire to suppress the pure doctrine of the Holy Gospel, the entire congregation of God, yea, every Christian, but especially the ministers of the word as the leaders of the congregation of God, as those whom God has appointed to rule his church, are bound by God's word to confess freely and openly the godly doctrine and what belongs to the whole of pure religion, not only in words, but also in works and with deeds. And that then, in this case, even in such things truly and of themselves adiaphora, they must not yield to the adversaries 
or permit these adiaphora to be forced upon them by their enemies, whether by violence or cunning, to the detriment of the true worship of God and the introduction and sanction of idolatry. For it is written, Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not again entangled in the yoke of bondage. Also Galatians 2.4, And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we, ha- we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Thus, Paul yields and gives way to the weak as to food and times or days, Romans 14, 6. But to the false apostles, who wish to impose these upon the conscience as necessary things, he will yield not even in such things as in themselves are adiaphora, Colossians 2.16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of an holy day. And when Peter and Barnabas yielded somewhat, more than they ought, in such an emergency, Paul openly reproves them as those who in this matter were not walking aright, according to the truth of the gospel, Galatians 2.11. For here, it is no longer a question concerning external matters of indifference, which in their nature and essence are and remain of themselves free, and accordingly can admit of no command or prohibition that they be employed or omitted. But it is a question in the first place concerning the eminent article of our Christian faith, as the Apostle testifies, that the truth of the gospel might continue, which is obscured and perverted by such compulsion or command, because such adiaphora are then either publicly required for the sanction of false doctrine, superstition, and idolatry, and for the suppression of pure doctrine and Christian liberty, or at least are abused for this purpose by the adversaries and are thus viewed. Likewise, the article concerning Christian liberty also is here at stake, which the Holy Ghost, through the mouth of the Holy Apostle, so earnestly charged his church to preserve, as we have just heard. For as soon as this is weakened, and the ordinances of men are forced upon the church with coercion, as though it were wrong and a sin to omit them, the way is already prepared for idolatry, and by this means ordinances of men are afterwards multiplied and regarded as a divine worship, not only equal to the ordinances of God, but are even placed above them. Moreover, by such yielding and conformity in external things, where there has not been previously Christian union in doctrine, idolaters are confirmed in their idolatry. On the other hand, the true believers are grieved, offended, and weakened in their faith, both of which every Christian for the sake of his soul's welfare and salvation is bound to avoid, as it is written, Woe unto the world because of offenses. Also, Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. But it is to be especially remembered what Christ says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father which is in heaven. Matthew 10.32 However, 
that this has always and everywhere been the faith and confession concerning such indifferent matters of the chief teachers of the Augsburg Confession into whose footsteps we have entered and in whose confession we intend by God's grace to persevere is shown most clearly by the following testimonies drawn from the small cult articles which were composed and subscribed in the year 1537. From the small cult articles in the year 1537, etc. The small cult articles of the church say concerning this as follows. We do not concede to them, the papal bishops, that they are the church, and indeed they are not, nor will we listen to those things which, under the name of church, they enjoin and forbid. For thank God, today a child seven years old knows what the church is, namely, the saints, believers, and lambs who hear the voice of their shepherd. And shortly before, of ordination and vocation, if the bishops would be true bishops and would devote themselves to the church and the gospel, it might be granted to them, for the sake of love and unity, but not from necessity, to ordain and confirm us and our preachers, omitting, however, all comedies and spectacular doings of an unchristian nature and display. But, because they neither are nor wish to be true bishops, but worldly lords and princes, who will neither preach, nor teach, nor baptize, nor administer the Lord's Supper, nor perform any work or office of the church, and moreover, persecute and condemn those who do, having been called to do so, discharge these functions, the church ought not on their account to remain without ministers. And in the article of the papacy, the small called articles say, Therefore, just as little as we can worship the devil himself as Lord and God, we can endure his apostle the Pope or Antichrist in his rule as head or Lord. For to lie and to kill and to destroy body and soul eternally, that is wherein his papal government really consists. And in the treatise concerning the power and primacy of the Pope, which is appended to the small called articles, and was also subscribed by the theologians then present with their own hands, are these words, No one is to burden the church with his own traditions, but here... The rule is to be that nobody's power or authority is to avail more than the word of God. And shortly afterwards, this being the case, all Christians ought most diligently to, be, to beware of becoming partakers of the godless doctrine, blasphemies, and unjust cruelties of the Pope, but ought to desert and execrate the Pope with his members or adherents as the kingdom of Antichrist, just as Christ is commanded, Matthew 7.15, Beware of false prophets. And Paul commands us to avoid false teachers and execrate them as an abomination. And in 2 Corinthians 6.14 he says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what communion hath light with darkness? It is a grave matter, wanting to separate oneself from so many lands and nations, and to profess a separate doctrine, but here stands God's command, that everyone should be aware and not agree with those who maintain false doctrine, or who think of supporting it by means of cruelty. So Dr. Luther, too, has amply instructed the Church of God in a special treatise concerning what should be thought of ceremonies in general 
and especially of Adiaphora, as was also done in 1530 and can be seen in Book 3, Jena, German. From this confession, everyone can understand what every Christian congregation and every Christian man, especially in time of confession, and most of all, preachers are to do or to leave undone without injury to conscience with respect to Adiaphora, in order that God may not be angered, love may not be injured, the enemies of God's word be not strengthened, nor the weak in faith offended. Therefore we reject and condemn as wrong when the ordinances of men in themselves are regarded as a service or part of the service of God. 2. We reject and condemn also as wrong when these ordinances are by coercion forced upon the congregation of God as necessary. 3. We reject and condemn also as wrong the opinion of those who hold what tends to the detriment of the truth, that at a time of persecution we may comply with the enemies of the Holy Gospel in restoring such adiaphora, or come to an agreement with them. 4. We likewise regard it as a sin that deserves to be rebuked when, in time of persecution, anything is done either in indifferent matters or in doctrine, and in what otherwise pertains to religion, for the sake of the enemies of the gospel, in word and act, contrary and opposed to the Christian confession. We reject and condemn also the madness when these adiaphora are abrogated in such a manner as though it were not free to the congregation of God at any time and place to employ one or more in Christian liberty, according to its circumstances, as may be most useful to the church. Thus the churches will not condemn one another because of dissimilarity of ceremonies, when in Christian liberty one has less or more of them, provided they are otherwise agreed with one another in the doctrine and all its articles also in the right use of the holy sacraments, according to the well-known saying, Dissonantia iaunii non dissolvit consonantiam fide. Disagreement in fasting does not destroy agreement in the faith. Article 11. Election. Although among the theologians of the Augsburg Confession there has not occurred as yet any public dissension, whatever, concerning the eternal election of the children of God that has caused offense and has become widespread, yet since this article has been brought into very painful controversy in other places, and even among our theologians there has been some agitation concerning it, moreover, since the same expressions were not always employed concerning it by the theologians. Therefore, in order, by the aid of divine grace, to prevent disagreement and separation on its account in the future among our successors, we, as much as in us lies, have desired also to present an explanation of the same here, so that everyone may know what is our unanimous doctrine, faith, and confession also concerning this article. For the doctrine concerning this article, if taught from and according to the pattern of the divine word and analogy of God's word and of faith, neither 
can nor should be regarded as useless or unnecessary, much less as offensive or injurious. Because the Holy Scriptures, not only in but one place and incidentally, but in many places thoroughly, treat and urge the same. Moreover, we should not neglect or reject the doctrine of the divine word on account of abuse or misunderstanding, but precisely on that account, in order to avert all abuse and misunderstanding, the true meaning should and must be explained from the foundation of the scriptures and the plain sum and substance concerning this article accordingly, consists in the following points. First, the distinction between the eternal foreknowledge of God and the eternal election of his children to eternal salvation is carefully to be observed. For praescientia vel praeficio, foreknowledge or prevision, that is, that God sees and knows everything before it happens, which is called God's foreknowledge, extends over all creatures, good and bad, namely, that he foresees and foreknows everything that is or will be, that is occurring or will occur, whether it be good or bad. Since before God all things, whether they be past or future, are manifest and present. Thus it is written, Matthew 10.29, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. And Psalm 139.16, Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there were none of them. Also Isaiah thirty-seven twenty-eight: I know thy abode, and thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. The eternal election of God, however, well predestinatio, or predestination, that is, God's ordination to salvation does not extend at once over the godly and the wicked, but only over the children of God, who were elected and ordained to eternal life before the foundation of the world was laid. As Paul says, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, He hath chosen us in him, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ. The foreknowledge of God, praescientia, foresees and foreknows also that which is evil. However, not in such a manner as though it were God's gracious will that it should happen, but all that the perverse, wicked will of the devil and of men wills and desires to undertake and do, God sees and knows before, and his praescientia, that is, foreknowledge, observes its order also in wicked acts or works, inasmuch as a limit and measure is fixed by God to the evil which God does not will, how far it should go, and how long it should last, when and how he will hinder and punish it. For all of this God the Lord so overrules that it must redound to the glory of the divine name and to the salvation of his elect, and the godless on that account must be put to confusion. However, the beginning and cause of evil is not God's foreknowledge, for God does not create and effect evil, neither does he help or promote it. But the wicked, perverse will of the devil and of men is the cause of evil, as it is written, Hosea 13.9, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. 
Also, thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, Psalm 5.4. The eternal election of God, however, not only foresees and foreknows the salvation of the elect, but is also, from the gracious will and pleasure of God in Christ Jesus, a cause which procures, works, helps, and promotes our salvation and what pertains thereto. And upon this divine predestination, our salvation is so founded that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. As is written, John 10, 28, Neither shall any man pluck my sheep out of my hand. And again, Acts 13, 48, And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Nor is this eternal election or ordination of God to eternal life to be considered in God's secret, inscrutable counsel in such a bare manner as though it comprised nothing further, or as though nothing more belonged to it, and nothing more were to be considered in it than that God foresaw who and how many were to be saved, who and how many were to be damned, or that he only held a sort of military muster, thus, this one shall be saved, that one shall be damned, this one shall remain steadfast in the faith to the end, that one shall not remain steadfast. For from this many derive and conceive strange, dangerous, and pernicious thoughts, which occasion and strengthen either security and impenitence, or despondency and despair, so that they fall into troublesome thoughts, and, for thus some think, with peril to themselves, nay, even sometimes, say, since before the foundation of the world was laid, Ephesians 1.4, God has foreknown, or predestinated, his elect to salvation, and God's foreknowledge, election, cannot fail, nor be hindered, nor changed by anyone, Isaiah 14.27, Romans 9.19. Therefore, if I am foreknown, elected to salvation, nothing can injure me with respect to it, even though I practice all sorts of sin and shame without repentance, have no regard for the word and sacraments, concern myself neither with repentance, faith, prayer, nor godliness, but I shall and must be saved nonetheless, because God's foreknowledge, election, must come to pass. If, however, I am not foreknown, predestinated, it helps me nothing anyway, even though I would occupy myself with the word, repent, believe, etc., for I cannot hinder or change God's foreknowledge predestination. And indeed also to godly hearts, even when by God's grace they have repentance, faith, and a good purpose, such thoughts occur as these. If you are not foreknown from eternity to salvation, everything is of no avail. This occurs especially when they view their weakness and the examples of those who have not persevered but have fallen away again. To this false delusion and thought, we should oppose the following clear argument which is sure and cannot fail, namely, since all scripture given by inspiration of God is to serve, not for security and impenitence, but for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3.16, also since everything in God's word has been prescribed to us, not that we should thereby be driven to despair, but that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope, Romans 15, 4. Therefore it is without any doubt in no way the sound sense or right use of the doctrine concerning the eternal foreknowledge of God, 
that either impenitence or despair should be occasioned or strengthened thereby. Accordingly, the Scriptures teach this doctrine in no other way than to direct us thereby to the revealed Word, Ephesians 1.13, 1 Corinthians 1.7, exhort to repentance, 2 Timothy 3.16, urge to godliness, Ephesians 1.14, John 15.3, strengthen faith and assure us of our salvation, Ephesians 1.13, John 10.27, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Therefore, if we wish to think or speak correctly and profitably concerning eternal election, or the predestination and ordination of the children of God to eternal life, we should accustom ourselves not to speculate concerning the bare, secret, concealed, inscrutable foreknowledge of God, but how the counsel, purpose, and ordination of God in Christ Jesus, who is the true book of life, is revealed to us through the word, namely, that the entire doctrine concerning the purpose, counsel, will, and ordination of God pertaining to our redemption, call, justification, and salvation should be taken together. As Paul treats and has explained this article, Romans 8.29, Ephesians 1.4, as also Christ in the parable, Matthew 22.1, namely, that God in his purpose and counsel ordained, 1. That the human race is truly redeemed and reconciled with God through Christ, who by his faultless obedience, suffering, and death, has merited for us the righteousness which avails before God and eternal life. 2. That such merit and benefits of Christ shall be presented, offered, and distributed to us through his word and sacraments. 3. That by his Holy Ghost through the word, when it is preached, heard, and pondered, he will be efficacious and active in us, convert hearts to true repentance, and preserve them in the true faith. 4. That he will justify all those who in true repentance receive Christ by a true faith, and will receive them into grace, the adoption of sons, and the inheritance of eternal life. 5. That he will also sanctify in love those who are thus justified, as St. Paul says, Ephesians 1, 4. 6 that he also will protect them in their great weakness against the devil, the world, and the flesh, and rule and lead them in his ways, raise them again when they stumble, comfort them under the cross and in temptation, and preserve them. That he will also strengthen, increase, and support to the end the good work which he has begun in them, if they adhere to God's word, pray diligently, abide in God's goodness, and faithfully use the gifts received. 8. That finally he will eternally save and glorify in life eternal those whom he has elected, called, and justified. And in this his counsel, purpose, and ordination, God has prepared salvation not only in general, but has in grace considered and chosen to salvation each and every person of the elect who are to be saved through Christ also ordained that in the way just mentioned, he will, by his grace, gifts, and efficacy, bring them thereto, make them participants of eternal salvation, aid, promote, strengthen, and preserve them. All this, according to the scriptures, is comprised in the doctrine concerning the eternal election of God to adoption and eternal salvation, and is to be understood by it, 
and never excluded nor omitted. When we speak of God's purpose, predestination, election, and ordination to salvation. And when our thoughts concerning this article are thus formed according to the Scriptures, we can, by God's grace, simply and correctly adapt ourselves to it. This also belongs to the further explanation and salutary use of the doctrine concerning God's foreknowledge to salvation. Since only the elect, whose names are written in the book of life, are saved, how we can know whence and whereby we can perceive who are the elect that can and should receive this doctrine for comfort. And of this, we should not judge according to our reason, nor according to the law, or from any external appearance. Neither should we attempt to investigate the secret concealed abyss of divine predestination, but should give heed to the revealed will of God, for he has made known unto us the mystery of his will, and made it manifest through Christ that it might be preached. Ephesians 1, 9, 2 Timothy 1, 9. This, however, is revealed to us in the manner as Paul says, Romans 8, 29, whom God predestinated, elected, and foreordained, he also called. Now God does not call without means, but through the word, as he has commanded repentance and remission of sins to be preached in his name, Luke 24, 47. St. Paul also testifies to like effect when he writes, We are ambassadors of Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 And the guests whom the king will have at the wedding of his son, he calls through his ministers sent forth, Matthew 22.2, some at the first and some at the second, third, sixth, ninth, and even at the eleventh hour, Matthew 23. Therefore, if we wish to consider our eternal election to salvation with profit, we must in every way hold sturdily and firmly to this, that as the preaching of repentance, so also the promise of the gospel is universalis, universal. That is, it pertains to all men, Luke twenty four forty seven. For this reason, Christ has commanded that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations. For God loved the world and gave his Son, John three sixteen. Christ bore the sins of the world, John one twenty nine gave his flesh for the life of the world, John 6.51. His blood is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, 1 John 1, 7, 2, 2. Christ says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Matthew 11.28. God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all, Romans 11.32. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him, Romans 10.12. The righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, Romans 3.22. This is the will of him that sent me, that every one that seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, John 6.40. Likewise, it is Christ's command that to all in common to whom repentance is preached, this promise of the gospel should also be offered, Luke 24, 47, Mark 16, 15. 
And this call of God, which is made through the preaching of the word, we should not regard as jugglery, but we know that thereby God reveals his will, that in those whom he thus calls, he will work through the word, that they may be enlightened, converted, and saved. For the word, whereby we are called, is a ministration of the Spirit that gives the Spirit, or whereby the Spirit is given, 2 Corinthians 3.8, and a power of God unto salvation, Romans 1.16. And since the Holy Ghost wishes to be efficacious through the Word, and to strengthen and give power and ability, it is God's will that we should receive the Word, believe, and obey it. For this reason the elect are described thus, John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And Ephesians 1, 11, 13, Those who according to the purpose are predestinated to an inheritance hear the gospel, believe in Christ, pray and give thanks, are sanctified in love, have hope, patience, and comfort under the cross, Romans 8, 25. And although all this is very weak in them, yet they hunger and thirst after righteousness, Matthew 5, 6. Thus the Spirit of God gives to the elect the testimony that they are children of God. And when they do not know for what they should pray as they ought, he intercedes for them with groanings that cannot be uttered. Romans 8, 16, 26. Thus also, Holy Scripture testifies that God who has called us is so faithful that when he has begun the good work in us, he will also preserve it to the end and perfect it if we ourselves do not turn from him, but firmly retain to the end the work begun for which he has promised his grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Philippians 1, 6, 1 Peter 5, 10, 2 Peter 3, 9, Hebrews 3, 2. With this revealed will of God, we should concern ourselves, follow and be diligently engaged upon it, because through the word, whereby he calls us, the Holy Ghost bestows grace power and ability to this end, and should not attempt to sound the abyss of God's hidden predestination, as it is written in Luke 13, 24, where one asks, Lord, are there few that be saved? And Christ answers, strive to enter in, in at the straight gate. Accordingly, Luther says in the preface to the epistle to the Romans, follow the epistle to the Romans in its order, concern yourself first with Christ and his gospel, that you may recognize your sins and his grace. Next, that you contend with sin, as Paul teaches from the first to the eighth chapter. Then, when in the eighth chapter you will come into temptation under the cross and afflictions, this will teach you in the ninth, tenth, and eleventh chapters how consolatory predestination is, etc. However, that many are called and few chosen is not owing to the fact that the call of God, which is made through the word, had the meaning as though God said outwardly through the word, I indeed call to my kingdom all of you to whom I give my word. However, in my heart, I do not mean this with respect to all, but only with respect to a few. For it is my will that the greatest part of those whom I call through the word shall not be enlightened or converted, but be and remain damned although through the word in the call I declare myself to them otherwise. Hoc enum eset deo contradictorias voluntates affingere, that is, 
for this would be to assign contradictory wills to God. That is, in this way it would be taught that God, who surely is eternal truth, would be contrary to himself, or say one thing but revolve another in his heart, while on the contrary God rebukes and punishes also men in this wickedness, this wantonness, this dishonesty. When a person declares himself to one purpose and thinks and means another in the heart, Psalm 5, 9, 12, 2. Thereby also the necessary consolatory foundation is rendered altogether uncertain and void, as we are daily reminded and admonished that only from God's word, through which he treats with us and calls us, we are to learn and conclude what his will towards us is, and that we should believe and not doubt what it affirms to us and promises. For this reason also, Christ causes the promise of the gospel not only to be offered in general, but he seals it through the sacraments, which he attaches as seals of the promise and thereby confirms it to every believer in particular. On this account, as the Augsburg Confession in Article 11 says, we also retain private absolution and teach that it is God's command that we believe such absolution and should regard it as sure that when we believe the word of absolution, we are as truly reconciled to God as though we had heard a voice from heaven as the Apology explains this article. This consolation would be entirely taken from us if we were not to infer the will of God toward us from the call which is made through the word and through the sacraments. There would also be overthrown and taken from us the foundation that the Holy Ghost wishes certainly to be present with the word, preached, heard, considered, and to be efficacious and operate through it. Therefore, the meaning is not at all the one referred to above, namely that the elect are to be such, as even despise the word of God, thrust it from them, blaspheme and persecute it, Matthew 22, 6, Acts 13, 46, or when they hear it, harden their hearts, Hebrews 4, 2, 7, resist the Holy Ghost, Acts 7, 51, without repentance, persevere in sins, Luke 14, 18, do not truly believe in Christ, Mark 16, 16, only make godliness an outward show, Matthew 7, 22, 22, 12, or seek other ways to righteousness and salvation outside of Christ, Romans 9, 31. Moreover, even as God has ordained in his eternal counsel that the Holy Ghost should call, enlighten, and convert the elect through the word, and that he will justify and save all those who by true faith receive Christ, so he also determined in his counsel that he will harden, reprobate, and condemn those who are called through the word, if they reject the word and resist the Holy Ghost, who wishes to be efficacious and to work in them through the word and persevere therein. And in this manner many are called, but few are chosen. For few receive the word and follow it. The greatest number despise the word and will not come to the wedding. Matthew 22, 3. The cause for this contempt of the word is not God's foreknowledge, but the perverse will of man, which rejects or perverts the means and instrument of the Holy Ghost, which God offers him through the call and resists the Holy Ghost, who wishes to be efficacious and works through the word, as Christ says, How often would I have gathered you together, and ye would not? Matthew twenty three thirty seven. Thus, many receive the word with joy, but afterwards fall away again, 
Luke 8.13. But the cause is not as though God were unwilling to grant grace for perseverance to those in whom he has begun the good work, for that is contrary to St. Paul, Philippians 1.6. But the cause is that they willfully turn away from the holy commandment of God, grieve and embitter the Holy Ghost, implicate themselves again in the filth of the world, and garnish again the habitation of the heart for the devil. With them, the last state is worse than the first, 2 Peter 2.10, 20, Ephesians 4.30, Hebrews 10.26, Luke 11.25. Thus far is the mystery of predestination revealed to us in God's word, and if we abide thereby and cleave thereto, it is a very useful salutary consolatory doctrine for it establishes very effectually the article that we are justified and saved without all works and merits of ours, purely out of grace alone, for Christ's sake. For before the time of the world, before we existed, yea, before the foundation of the world was laid, when of course we could do nothing good, we were, according to God's purpose, chosen in grace by grace in Christ to salvation, Romans 9.11, 2 Timothy 1.9. Moreover, all opiniones, opinions, and erroneous doctrines concerning the powers of our natural will are thereby overthrown, because God in his counsel, before the time of the world, decided and ordained that he himself, by the power of his Holy Ghost, would produce and work in us, through the word, everything that pertains to our conversion. Thus, this doctrine affords also the excellent, glorious consolation that God was so greatly concerned about the conversion, righteousness, and salvation of every Christian, and so faithfully purposed it, that before the foundation of the world was laid, he deliberated concerning it, and in his secret purpose ordained how he would bring me thereto and preserve me therein. Also, that he wished to secure my salvation so well and certainly, that since through the weakness and wickedness of our flesh it could easily be lost from our hands, or through craft and might of the devil and the world be snatched and taken from us, he ordained it in his eternal purpose, which cannot fail or be overthrown, and placed it for preservation in the almighty hand of our Savior Jesus Christ, from which no one can pluck us, John 10.28. Hence Paul also says, Romans 8.28.39, because we have been called according to the purpose of God, who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Mm -hmm.